Amen. We serve an awesome God. I don't think I'll ever forget the day. It was February 24th, the year 2002. My wife and I spent a day and a half driving back and forth from home to Victor Valley Hospital, and Kayla was taking her own sweet time being born. So we got to the hospital for the second time, and my wife tried her best, but eventually the doctor broke the news to us. He said, we're going to have to do a C-section. So it was late on a Sunday afternoon, and they whisked my wife into the OR, and there I was, never having gone through this experience before, and they stuck me in a room by myself, and they told me they would come and get me before the C-section would take place. So there I was all donned up in my little white get-up with my little muffin hat on, pacing the floor back and forth and praying that they didn't forget me. Eventually, the nurse came and got me and brought me into the OR, and the curtain was there just at my wife's shoulders so the operating team could do their thing below the curtain. And I was standing beside Christine's head on the right side of her and trying to comfort her and explain what was going on because of the curtain. She couldn't tell what they were doing. And so eventually, the doctor delivered our bouncing baby girl, Kayla Christine Davis. And they took her and they cleaned her up beautifully. They took her to the nursery and put her in the little incubator. And so I went to the nursery. Christine wanted me to stay with Kayla. So I went and was there in the nurseries. They cleaned her up and got her all set in the incubator looking beautiful. And I couldn't believe I was a father for the first time. And and then eventually after an hour or so, Christine came out of recovery and they wheeled her back to the room. And there before too long, all three of us were together in that room. And I was getting a little hungry. So I said, you know, Christine, you mind if I run over to Carl's Jr. and get one of those $6 burgers? They were pretty new back then. I said, yeah, she can go get. So I went to to Carl's Jr., got myself a $6 burger. Within a half hour, I was back in that room with my beautiful baby girl and with Christine enjoying my $6 burger. Fast forward about two and a half years. It's June 10th, 2004. We're back at that same familiar scene. The doctor told us you're going to need to have a C-section. And so they whisk Christine back. I get my little white get-up on. I'm waiting, pacing the floor back and forth. And we go into that OR, and the baby is ready to be delivered. But this time, we didn't know ahead of time, boy or girl. And I assumed, since our first was a girl, this was going to be a boy. I just knew it. But I told the doctor, as you hold up the baby, allow me to be the first to say, it's a boy or it's a girl. Yeah, it's not going to be it's a girl, but it's a boy. Let me, let me be the first. So he delivers our second, and he holds the child up. And his arms are getting tired because I'm doing this number. It's a girl. And so, yeah, it was Haley Joy. And Haley Joy is born. And they did the similar thing. They cleaned her up. They got her to the nursery, got her in the incubator. And so here's what I'm thinking. I'm getting a little hungry. And you know what? Uh, I'm an experienced father at this point. I've been through this routine before, and so I know I've got probably 45 minutes to an hour before Christine is out of recovery and back in her room. And, you know, Haley's in good hands. She's well taken care of. I've got enough time to go get my $6 burger and get back here before Christine knows what happened. And so I take off. Meanwhile, Christine is wheeled back into the room. She looks around and asks the nurse a simple question. Where is my husband? Is, is he with our baby? 
And the nurse said, uh, no, I, I think he left to get something to eat. Christine, still a little groggy and a little disoriented, says, no, my husband wouldn't leave me and the baby. About ten minutes later, I come strolling back into the room with my Carl's Jr. bag, and man, did I get an evil eye. I couldn't, my heart dropped, and I felt terrible, and my wife chewed me out, and I deserved every word of it. I had dropped the ball. That was a defining moment in our marriage. And I tell you, when number three and four were born, I didn't make the same mistake again. When it comes down to it, guys, we have some defining moments as parents. And I want to share with you a message. This will be the, the last message in this series, unless the Lord gives me another one to give you a little bit later down the road. But my plan is this is the last of our defining moments message, uh, messages in this series. And I want to share with you another one of my favorites. It's a story of Joshua. And so I need you to have your Bibles ready, open to Exodus chapter 17. We'll be doing uh, some page turning today, so we'll start in Exodus 17. And every time I ask you to go to a new passage, you'll just turn to your right. So we're starting at the first one, and we'll make our way uh, through Exodus and into Joshua before the end of this. But what I want to share with you today are, are, are five instances where Joshua has these defining moments, and he rises to the occasion as he's taking his journey of faith. And I think you're going to be blessed no matter if you're a mom or a dad or you don't have any children of your own. Regardless of your situation, young, old, male or female, you will be blessed by these lessons. But lesson number five, the fifth of these, is especially for dads today. So I hope you're blessed by this message. Remember last week we left off with uh, the great story of Moses and that defining moment he had at the burning bush. And uh, God came to Moses and said, you are to go to Pharaoh. And say, let my people go. And we saw last week that Moses came up with five excuses, five reasons why he was the wrong man for the job. But God was not convinced. Even though Moses gave him five excuses why God should send someone else, God sent Moses anyway. And aren't we glad that he did? Because Moses reluctantly goes back to Egypt. He gives Pharaoh that message, let my people go. And the people rally behind Moses. And after ten plagues, Pharaoh finally says, you're free to go. And Moses leads somewhere between one and two million Israelites out of slavery in Egypt toward the promised land that God had said was flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses led the way to the front door of the promised land. And when he got them to that front door of the promised land, it's then that Joshua would lead his people. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the wonderful account of Joshua in Scripture. And we pray, O oh God, that you would teach us, that you would shape us, that you would inspire us through this message. And I pray once again that my words would not get in the way of your words. Do your thing today, God, as you do so well. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, turn to the person next to you and say, this is going to be a good one. Go ahead. Did anyone say anything differently than that? I just want to know out of curiosity. Okay, so we're diving in. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 17. Now, we know Joshua best as being the one who led the people into the promised land once Moses had gotten them all the way there. 
Joshua is the one that's best known for once Moses died and said, okay, we're here at the promised land. They're ready for a new leader. They're ready for you to take the land. He hands the mantle of leadership to Joshua, and Joshua takes it from there. That's what he's best known for, conquering that promised land and allowing the people of Israel to settle into that land that God had promised. But we're going to pick Joshua up about 40 years before that, right after Moses had led the people out of slavery in Egypt. We're going to pick him up in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 It's the first time in Scripture that we find Joseph, excuse me, Joshua mentioned. It's the very first time that he's mentioned. Now, in Exodus 14, Moses had stretched out his staff over the Red Sea, and God drove back the waters so the Israelites could all cross the sea on dry land. The Egyptian army, you remember, was pursuing them, and they said, hey, the, the river's opened up, the sea has opened up, let's go across it just like the Israelites did. That was a really bad idea. They went across on dry land, and once the Israelites were all safely on the opposite shore, God basically snaps his fingers, and the water comes crashing down and wipes out every single one of Pharaoh's army soldiers that had tried to cross the Red Sea. Well, you fast forward a few weeks from the Red Sea, and that's where we pick things up in Exodus 17. Moses and the people of Israel are on their way to Mount Sinai, where, as you remember, God would give Moses the Ten Commandments on those two stone tablets. But on their way to Mount Sinai, the Israelite nation is attacked. This time they're not attacked by Pharaoh and his Egyptian army. This time they're attacked by the descendants of Esau called the Amalekites. And so the Amalekites start attacking the Israelite camp. And this is where we pick up in Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men. And go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him. And he was able to sit on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and and another man on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. So when you read through the book of Exodus, uh, Joshua seems to just drop out of nowhere. It's the first time he's, he's mentioned here in Exodus. He's not introduced at all. We're told nothing here in Exodus 17 about who he is or uh, how old he is or why Moses chose him to lead this small army to fight off their attackers. But we can piece some details together about Joshua if we read some things about him later in the book of Exodus and if we fast forward to the book of Numbers. Let me give you a few examples. In Exodus 33, verse 11, we're told that Joshua was a young aide of Moses. So when he was given this charge in Exodus 17 to lead the army against their attackers, we know that he was a young guy. We read in Numbers 11:28 that Joshua had been Moses' aide since youth. So he was one of Moses' regular helpers. Numbers 14, we learn that Joshua was counted in the census that took place after the Israelites left Egypt. And we know that only the men 20 years of age or older were counted. So we know by that verse that Joshua had to have been at least 20 years old here in Exodus chapter 17. 
we find something really interesting, I think, in Numbers 13, verse 16 about Joshua. We discover in Numbers 13, 16 that Joshua wasn't his given name. It wasn't his birth name. We always call him Joshua, but that actually wasn't his birth name. His birth name was Hosea, which means salvation. And we're told there in Numbers 13, 16 that Moses early on had changed his name from Hosea, which means salvation, to Joshua, which means Yahweh, the Lord, saves. Yahweh, the Lord, saves. And catch this, some 1,400 years later, the angel Gabriel would go to Joseph and then separately go to Mary and say, you are going to have a special miracle son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus in Greek is the same name as Joshua in Hebrew. So God evidently had inspired Moses to change Hosea's name to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And if they had spoken the Greek language back then in Joshua's day, his name would have been Jesus because they mean the exact same thing. Jesus of the Old Testament, Joshua, in many ways foreshadows the coming of our true Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? So you take all these uh, little tidbits together, and we are able to, to piece together a pretty good picture of Joshua here in Exodus chapter 17. It seems pretty clear that Joshua had grown up as a slave in Egypt, and when Moses became Israel's leader, Joshua somehow stood out in the crowd. He demonstrated a humble heart for service. He demonstrated a sharp intellect for leading men who were older and more experienced than he was. And evidently, he was a warrior because Moses places him in charge of this army. And so when Moses gives Joshua this assignment, Joshua here is likely only 20 or 21 years old. And so imagine this, Moses puts him in charge of leading an army of soldiers, many of whom were older and more experienced than he was, but Moses trusted him and his leadership that much. So here's what most likely happened. Moses was leading somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million men, women, and children across the desert. And as you know, whenever you're leading a large group of people, even if you're leading four kids, like I am at times when we're going through a mall or an amusement park or whatever it is, oftentimes in any group there's going to be stragglers, right? So imagine leading two million people. There were certainly stragglers. There were some that were strong and robust and walked quickly, and they were out in front of the pack, and there were others that were kind of lagging behind. Some of maybe the older seniors that weren't in the best health, maybe others that were younger but had health issues, maybe moms that were nursing their newborn babies. There were ones in back of the pack, and what we believe happened was these Amalekites attacked the back of the Israelite camp where they were most vulnerable. They attacked the weakest link. And so they were attacking him from behind, and so Moses gets word of this, and he says, Joshua, build an army and quickly get back there and defend our ranks. And so that's what Joshua does. He leads the counterattack against the Amalekites. And we see that this wonderful story, as long as Moses had his hands in the air, uh, they were victorious. And whenever his arms got tired and he brought them down, uh, Joshua and his army began to lose the fight. And so Aaron and Hur saw this, and so first they put a rock under Moses to help him get a little more comfortable with his arms in the air, but his arms are still getting tired, and so each man holds up an arm, and they do this until sunset. And as long as Moses' arms are in the air, Joshua and his army are winning the fight. I like how Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, Joshua and his army 
would trust God and fight. Moses and his associates would trust God and intercede in prayer. And God would do the rest. Isn't that applicable to so much that we do as a church? Uh, Whether it's right now, at this moment, having volunteers in the nursery and volunteers teaching our kids, right now there are members of our church that are back there serving the kids. Right? They're back there serving. They're back there helping. They're back there, you might even look at it as fighting a fight because so much of the world tries to pull on our kids, to pull them away from God's Word, to pull them away from Christ. So we've got some warriors in our midst who are back there teaching our kids God's Word. Amen? And meanwhile, we have a spirit of intercessory prayer praying for those that are serving our kids. Many of you are serving this week with VBS. Thank you so much for serving. If you're not physically in the building, though, I ask that you pray. Do what Moses was doing. He didn't have a sword in hand. He wasn't down on the battlefield dodging swings from the enemy, but he had his hands up and was interceding in prayer. He was doing his part. And when the intercessors joined force with the workers and the servants, amazing things happen in God's kingdom. Amen? So whether you're serving this week or praying, make sure that you're fighting, you're part of the battle, and together God will win some great victories. Lesson number one that we can pull here from Exodus chapter 17. It's the first couple blanks for you to fill in on your handout. Lesson number one, regardless of your age, God has called you to lead others to help the helpless and fight for what's right. God has called you to help the helpless and fight for what's right. So if you're filling in those blanks, put those two words down, help and fight. Because when it comes down to it, God has called us to defend those who cannot defend themselves. I love that great uh, couple of verses in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Religion that God our, our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and also to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. One of the things God loves His people to do is to fight for those who can't fight for themselves, to defend those who cannot defend themselves, to lift up those who are broken and down, to help the helpless. It's what God calls His people to do as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Joshua sets a great example for us here in Exodus 17. Well, let's fast forward. Please turn in your Bibles there to Exodus chapter 24, just a few pages to your right. In Exodus chapter 24, the nation of Israel was at the base of Mount Sinai, so in all likelihood a few weeks had passed since the events of Exodus 17. They're there at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is about to get those two tablets with the Ten Commandments spelled out on them. Uh, Moses begins his ascent up Mount Sinai with 73 other men. He has 73 other men as he begins his ascent of Mount Sinai. Seventy of them were Israel's elders, along with Moses' brother, the high priest, and two, or excuse me, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. So this group of 74, including Moses, starts their way up Mount Sinai. Partway up the mountain, we read in this chapter, Moses instructed the elders to stay where they were, and he and Joshua would continue on with the ascent up Mount Sinai. And so picture this. You've got 72 of these guys stop where they are partway up the mountain, and Moses and Joshua continue on from there. So they get a little further up Mount Sinai. Then Moses tells Joshua, now you are to stay here by yourself, and I will ascend the rest of the way to receive those Ten Commandments from God. So that's what happens, and this is what I want you to chew on from this little passage uh, here in Exodus chapter 24. 
what we want to keep in mind is that of these 74 leaders in Israel, and these were the cream of the crop. Remember, there's some 2 million people in the Israelite nation by this point. And so 74, the cream of the crop, are making their way up Mount Sinai. But of those 74, Joshua alone was allowed to ascend higher up the mountain than anyone else except for Moses. And so we keep that in mind because God is in the midst of doing something in Joshua, even though at the time he's probably only 21 years old or so. Now, a few more pages to the right, Exodus chapter 33. We're going to fuse what we just saw in chapter 24 together with what we read here in chapter 33. At this point, God has spoken to Moses. He's given him the Ten Commandments. And here we find out that after he leaves Mount Sinai, Moses sets up a tent on the outside of camp. So all the people gathered together in their tribal groups as part of a huge campsite as they were making their way across the wilderness to the promised land. And way outside of camp, Moses sets up this tent by itself, and he calls it the tent of meeting. And on a regular basis, God's glory would come down upon the tent. Moses would go inside the tent and meet with God. And so it was a very sacred place before the temple was ever built, even before the tabernacle was ever built. He had this tent of meeting where the Shekinah glory of God would descend, and he would speak with Moses face to face. And here's what we read in Exodus 33, verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, and catch this, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So chew on this nugget with me. The Spirit of God would regularly descend upon the tent of meeting. God would speak to Moses face to face inside the tent. So it was a sacred place that was regularly filled with the presence of God and the glory of God. And Joshua never left the tent. 24-7, he lived in the house of the Lord. That's kind of cool to think about, isn't it? And so what a wonderful thing it is to consider. Joshua was entrusted with this wonderful, glorious responsibility to defend the tent of meeting from any looky-loos that might want to sneak a peek when Moses wasn't around. So as a warrior, he was probably in charge of defending this tent of meeting, making sure the riffraff didn't come inside and somehow make this sacred place unsacred. He was put in charge of being there at the tent 24-7 there in the house of the Lord. And I think we can extrapolate from these two passages. Exodus 24, when he's allowed to ascend higher on Mount Sinai than anyone else besides Moses. And here in Exodus 33, when he's living night and day in the house of the Lord, we can extrapolate this lesson. Here it is, lesson number two. Most people prefer to keep God at a distance, but God invites us to draw close. Isn't that a great lesson? Most people prefer to keep God at a distance, but God invites us to draw close. Truth be told, the people of Israel didn't want to go up Mount Sinai. Truth be told, when the Shekinah glory of God, and it's described as a cloud that descended on this tent of meeting here in Exodus 33, truth be told, the people didn't want to come near that cloud. 
In fact, when, God, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai a few times, when he would come down, or even when he came out of the tent of meeting from being in the presence of the Lord, we read that he had this practice of putting a veil over his face because the people were scared to look even at the reflection of God's glory coming off of Moses' face when he had been in the presence of the Lord. The people didn't even want to be near the reflection of God, let alone drawing close to God himself. And so they didn't want to go up Mount Sinai. They were happy to stay at a distance. They didn't want to go into the tent of meeting when God was there. They wanted to stay at a distance. But Joshua wisely was there 24-7 and was not scared to draw close to the presence of God. I want to ask you today, are you boldly approaching the throne of God's grace? Or are you much more comfortable just staying at a distance? Because you know what? We have a luxury that most people in the Old Testament times didn't have, the luxury of drawing close to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made it possible for you and I to approach God. You can approach Him just as easily as I can. You don't have to go through a priest like in the Old Testament times. You don't have to go through a high priest like in Old Testament times. You don't have to go through a pastor. You can go directly to Jesus directly to God through Jesus Christ because He is the only mediator that you need. Amen? So do not be afraid to draw close to God. He invites you not to be at a distance, but press in close to Him. If you're going through a tough time and you want to be distant from people, okay, I understand. Sometimes we like to be distant from people when we're going through a tough time. But make sure that you do not allow yourself to remain distant from God. Go ahead and turn to the book of Numbers, a couple books to your right. Numbers chapter 14. Here in Numbers 14, we read of another very important incident in Joshua's young life. Numbers 14, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. And as we do, we'll see a a third lesson that we can extrapolate from uh, this story in Joshua's life. Numbers 14, we're going to start in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. All right. It says, that night. All the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now we stop there for a moment. What on earth is going on here? Well, what has happened since Mount Sinai? What's happened since Joshua was hanging out in that tent of meeting? Well, almost 40 years has transpired since that point. So now we have Joshua, not 21 years old or so. Now he's probably 60, 61. And so here we have Moses almost done with his journey, leading the people through the wilderness to the promised land. They're almost there at the gate of the promised land, almost ready to go in. And Moses sends out 12 spies to spy out the land. Many of you remember the story. He says, I want you to go into this land of milk and honey for 40 days and come back and tell us uh, what you find, what you see. Report back to us everything you experience. So they go out for 40 days. He has 12 different spies headed out, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And guess who one of these 12 spies is? Good old Joshua. He's there again at a key moment. The 12 spies come back and 10 of them speak up. And ten of those spies speak up and say, you know what, God was right. Man, this place, it's flowing with milk and honey. 
the grapes are like this big, and they've got all this wonderful produce, and the land is fertile. But you know what? We can't attack these people. They're too big. The cities are too strong. The walls are too thick. Wah, wah, wah. So that's what's going on. The ten are reporting their bad report to Moses and the rest of the Israelites. And when the Israelites hear these ten complainers, their hearts drop. They begin to complain and murmur and say, we would have been better off to die in Egypt. That's where we pick up in verse 4. They said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. Do you get the impression Joshua is going to do something great here? He does. They tore their clothes. See, what verse was I in? I lost my place. Okay, verse 7. So they tore their clothes. And they said to the entire Israelite community, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of this land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So they give them this charge. Don't listen to the complainers. It doesn't matter how thick the walls are. It doesn't matter how tall the people were. Some of the people that they saw as they explored the land were actually the ancestors of Goliath. Remember him? A few hundred years later, nine foot and, nine foot and six inches tall, fights young David. Some of these guys that they saw as they explored the land and spied it out, some of these were the ancestors of Goliath. And so they were intimidated. They were scared. These ten are complaining. No, we can't attack them. But Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. It doesn't matter how tall they are. It doesn't matter how big the cities are. It doesn't matter how thick the walls are of those cities. We have God on our side, and he will give us the victory. Amen? Of the 12 spies who spied out the land, only Joshua and Caleb had faith in God. They were the only two. And as a result, they were the only two of the 12 spies who didn't die of a plague that God sent on the other 10. And Joshua and Caleb were the only middle-aged men who were allowed to enter the promised land. Every other man who had been at least 20 years of age at the point of leaving Egypt 40 years earlier, every other man 20 years of age or older died in the desert and didn't get to step foot in the promised land. Caleb and Joshua were the only two middle-aged men that got to enter the promised land. Here's lesson number three that we can pull from this great passage. Lesson number three, there is no need to fear men when the Lord is with us. Amen? There's no need to fear men when the Lord is with us. So walk by faith and not by sight. No need to fear men when God is with us. It doesn't matter how the odds are stacked against you. It doesn't matter how uh, much stronger their armament is. It doesn't matter how uh, much more experienced they are, how much more intelligent they are. If God is on our side, God plus me equals victory. Amen? God's on my side. That's all that matters. Now, flip over to, to the book of Joshua. Two more books to the right. We're going to finish with two great passages here. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. 
After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to, to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is what? The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a great passage. For some of you, this may be your favorite passage. And for some of you, your favorite verse in Scripture. I know Alan, uh, who, uh, by the way, he'll get to, to preach for us here in a few weeks. Uh, Alan, is, uh, that's his favorite verse. It's been his favorite verse for a long time as he's battled his disease of arachnoiditis and been confined to that wheelchair. He loves Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Joshua was about to embark on a mission that would have completely intimidated most men. Within a few days, he would be leading hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children across the Jordan River into hostile territory. The walls around the enemy cities, once again, were tall and they were thick. The residents of the cities were big and intimidating. But when push came to shove, only one thing really mattered. The only thing that really mattered was that God revealed to Joshua in verse 5, No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he says it a little bit differently in verse 9. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That's the only thing that mattered. All the other stuff didn't matter. It didn't matter how big the cities were. It didn't matter how tall the people were. The only thing that mattered was that God was going to be with him, and he promised to give him victory. So with that truth settled, the only thing left for Joshua to do was what? If the truth was settled that God was with him, the only thing he needed to do was go to obey, to walk in strength and walk in courage. So God says be strong and courageous. He didn't need to be scared of what he saw in enemy territory. He didn't need to worry about the size of the city walls or the size of the enemy soldiers. Uh, He didn't need to worry about the, the rumbles of their threats. And you better believe they were threatening the Israelites. But none of that mattered because God was on his side. Once again, God plus me equals victory. Lesson number four. Lesson number four. When we are in the center of God's will, there is no room for fear. Amen? When we're in the center of God's will, there's no room for fear. There's only room for strength and courageous obedience. Many Christians do hold Joshua 1.9 as their favorite verse in Scripture. What a wonderful reminder it is for us to be strong and courageous. If God has told you to do something and God has said he will be with you as you do it, the only thing left to do is courageously obey. 
and walk in faith. Remember that Christianity isn't complicated. You and I don't have to figure everything out. We simply have to trust God and love God and obey God. And if we're going to obey, we might as well obey courageously, right? If you're going to obey Him, you might as well obey Him with courage. One final lesson I want to point out to you, especially to dads today. Flip over to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. And this passage is at the tail end of Joshua's life. He's probably just a few weeks, possibly even just a few days away from passing away. And he gives a charge to his people in Joshua 24. They've already conquered the promised land. They've already settled in the promised land. He's old and gray and 110 years old. And he's ready to go be with the Lord. And here's what he says in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. He assembles all the the main leaders of Israel together. They come to him, and he says in verses 14 and 15, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away all the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a powerful thing for this patriarch and his family to say. For this leader of Israel to say, once he had accomplished his mission that God had placed him on this earth to accomplish, to lead his people through the gates of the promised land, to settle in the land flowing with milk and honey. What a wonderful and marvelous thing for him to say as he's almost on his deathbed at this point. Be strong and courageous and make sure that you follow the Lord with everything you've got and make sure your family does as well. And you do what you choose, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Joshua did all that God commanded him to do over the next 50 years or so after uh, he had led his people through uh, the uh, Jordan River to the walls of Jericho. He took about 50 years to clear the land and allow them to settle in that promised land. And so he is about 110 here, and he gives this charge to his people. What a wonderful thing for him to say. Here's lesson number five. It's not just about me serving the Lord faithfully. I must do my very best to lead my family to serve the Lord faithfully. And as I mentioned earlier, guys, this final lesson is especially for those of you who are dads today. It's especially important. It's not enough. Don't put away your notes or Bibles quite yet because we have a few quick important things I need to share with you in closing. It's not enough for me to say I'm following the Lord. It's not enough for me to say I'm doing what I'm supposed to do for me following the Lord. It's critical that we take the charge God has given us to be the spiritual leaders in our home and lead our families to Christ to the very best of our ability. Many Christian dads wonder, should I require my family to pray together? The answer is, yes, you should. As long as they're under your roof and God has called you to be the spiritual leader in your home, yes, you should require your family to pray together. Well, should I make sure my family is is reading Scripture or should I not put too much pressure on them at home and let them make their own decision? Dads, yes, you should make sure that your kids and your family is reading Scripture together. 
Make sure because God has called you once again to be the spiritual leader in your home. Well, how about this one? Should I make my kids go to church because I don't want to scare them off from God? I, want to, I don't want to uh, you know, force something on them. Well, let me ask you, dads, do you require that they brush their teeth? Are you afraid you're going to scare them off from toothbrushes when they're adults? I don't know of anyone on the planet that's been scared off from toothbrushes because they had to brush their teeth as kids. Are you afraid if you have them eat their broccoli at dinner that they're never going to eat another vegetable for the rest of their life? Well, maybe that's a bad example. Uh, But you hear what I'm saying here. God has called you to be the spiritual leader. Should you make your kids go to church? Once again, if they are under your roof, yeah. Yeah. And I fully plan if my kids move back after the age of 18, we're going to have some rules, and I don't care if they're 18, 25, or 30. All right, you decide to move back in with mom and dad. That's cool with us, but we've got some rules, and one of those is this is a house that serves the Lord, and we're going to pray together, we're going to read some scripture together, and we're going to go to church together. Dad, some of you may need to step up and make that bold decision, and some of your kids may not like it, but so be it. You're doing your duty that God has entrusted to you. Well, should I restrict my teens from watching movies or listening to music that dishonors God? Absolutely you should. You should screen everything that comes into your home. You probably pay the bill on that cell phone. You make sure you know what's in it. Make sure you know what's coming across it. You pay the bill for that cable or that satellite. Yeah, absolutely. You should guard what comes in to your home because that is your sanctuary. That is the place God has entrusted to you as the pastor of your home. So dads, we only have a short time with our kids under our roof. So like Joshua, we should say, I'll take it a step further. Like Joshua, we must say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And possibly for some of you dads, you'll have that defining moment this week to draw a line in the sand and say, family, things are going to change from now on. As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And starting today, some things are going to be changing around here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for every dad in this room. Thank you for every mom in this room. Thank you for every a young person in this room, every senior in this room, oh God. Thank you for each of us that you have called to rise to the occasion, to serve you, to trust you, and to obey your word. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to stand strong in our faith and boldly, Lord, Go into the promised land that you've called us to enter. Lord, that we would trust you every step of the way. And that we would arise to the challenge that you have given us. To lead well. To serve well. And to walk in obedience to your commands, just like Joshua. Thank you for providing this wonderful role model for us. A man who, whether he was young and and just an attendant to Moses, or old and gray and leading a nation of over a million, Lord, he served you well. I pray, O oh God, that we would serve you well also. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go into this time of invitation,